driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws which he set before us by his servants the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his word, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, According to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Let's pray. Father in heaven, no one knows more clearly this morning our need and our weakness than you. You see the distractions that weigh on us and press against us. You see our sin, which causes us to uh, uh, see your word dimly, to refuse to, to heed it or to submit to it. You see our tiredness. You see, Lord, uh, just all of our limitations. And because you see them clearly, you know how to deal with them. And so we ask that you would help, that you would help us to hear your word, that you would help us to, to, to take from it, to be fed by it. So please do that, Lord, for the sake of your name. Amen. As we've uh, been working through the book of Daniel together, a theme that we've come across 
repeatedly is exilic living. That is, how do the people of God uh, live in a world that is uh, not their home? And I've tried to help us see and to feel, just as the apostle uh, Peter tells us in the New Testament, that the church today is a church in exile. Christians are those who, uh, by the grace of God, have, have attained a, a, a citizenship that is in heaven, and yet we live in a world that refuses to bend its knee in submission and worship to King Jesus. And we realize uh, at all different intersection points that the world is genuinely not our home. We don't belong. This is true for us as individual Christians, but we also see it uh, when, when we look at the church more broadly. We, the church feels its exilic status in, in a whole number of ways. We see it uh, by the persecution which is endured uh, by the church throughout the world, by the hostility both open and, and perhaps more muted uh, uh, throughout the world. We see it uh, in uh, the world's response to the church's witness. We see it in the perception of, uh, that the world has of the church, where the church is seen in many quarters as unnecessary or irrelevant or uh, uh, pathetic or quaint. The world looks at the church and, and perhaps laughs. The church, uh, as a church in exile, has many needs and faces many difficulties. We see it in all sorts of, of places. We see, sort of like Daniel saw his people in his day, we see that the church uh, in many places is in a beleaguered state. We see our weakness. And so I want to ask this morning at the outset, do you pray for her? Do you pray for the church? I'm not asking whether you pray for the members uh, uh, within the church or the pastors or the elders or the deacons of the church. I'm asking, do you pray for the church? This church, yes, but uh, even more broadly, uh, the church universal, as theologians refer to it. The church uh, as she's gathered throughout the world, wherever she meets. The church as she's gathered in places like Nairobi and Brussels and Jakarta and Mexico City. Perhaps it's, it's just me, I suspect it's not though, but it seems harder to pray for uh, the church than it is to pray for uh, the person in your small group. It just seems like it's less concrete to pray for the church than it is to pray for Jack's job search or uh, Jill's rocky marriage. But we see in Daniel chapter 9 that this is a prayer for the church, the church in exile. So the question is, how exactly do you pray for the church? Where do you start? Maybe that's part of our problem. We don't know how we are to pray. And in this regard, Daniel chapter 9, Daniel's prayer is instructive to us. Daniel's prayer shows us what it looks like to pray for the church while she's in exile. Now, this prayer could have just as easily been summarized in a few lines, but the Holy Spirit saw fit to, to have this prayer in its expanded form presented to us because I think we are meant to be instructed by it. And I think uh, that, that we can look at this prayer and we can learn how are we in, in our, our personal prayer times and when we gather together as a church here on Sundays and, and in our, our prayer meetings and the like, how are we to pray 
for this church, the bride of Christ, which he deems so precious. So here's what I want to do this morning. First, we're going to look at uh, um, what it is that springs Daniel into praying for the church. And then we'll look at four specific uh, features of Daniel's prayer that will help us to see uh, what it looks like to pray for the church as she's living in a world, not her home. So our passage begins by reminding us again uh, where we are in the book of Daniel. Daniel's living in Babylon, uh, where he's been in exile, in bondage, for uh, six decades. Now Daniel and the Jews are in exile because they've rebelled against God. Now if you're uh, perhaps unfamiliar with the Old Testament or you're just joining us, you need to know that God had entered into a special covenant relationship with his people. He had, had, had uh, brought them out of slavery uh, in Egypt and he had brought them into a promised land and he had specially established uh, the, the people of Israel as his people and he had promised to be their God. But as we see throughout the Old Testament, the hearts of the people of God were prone to wander. Time and time again, God, though, uh, 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 spoke to his people because they were, were turning their, uh, to other gods, they were disobeying God's commands, and God warned his people through the prophets that if uh, these people continued in this way, if his people continued in this way uh, with their disobedience, things would not go well for them. He would punish them. And yet, the people persisted in their rebellious ways, and so God pronounced judgment on them. Now, if you've got your Bibles, I'd ask that you just flip uh, closer to the beginning of your Bible, to Jeremiah 25. I want to show you uh, one such place where God uh, pronounced the pending judgment upon his people. Jeremiah 25, starting at verse 8. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then, after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord." making the land an everlasting waste. You see here, uh, uh, I want to show you at least here, uh, three features of, uh, of what uh, God had just prophesied through Jeremiah. First, we saw that the punishment would be at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And we saw how, how that was true. Secondly, uh, the Lord says that this punishment would be for a period of 70 years. And third, he says, when the, the period of punishment was over, God would in turn punish Bab the Babylonians for their sins. And if you were to flip just a, a few chapters later to Jeremiah 29, verse 10, you'd see the Lord uh, uh, adds a fourth thing uh, to, to his, his promises of what will happen. 
as he executes judgment. There we read that the Lord says, when the 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you, he's speaking to his people, I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Now, I put these words before you quite intentionally because these were most assuredly the words that Daniel was reading in his personal devotions at the start of our chapter. As Daniel's reading these words in in Jeremiah, the people have been in captivity, as I mentioned, for nearly 70 years. And as we saw in the first three verses, the Babylonian Empire uh, had uh, just been replaced uh, and crushed by the Persians. So as Daniel reads these words in his personal devotion time, Daniel realizes that uh, God's promised restoration was coming soon. The 70 years was almost up. The Babylonians had just been defeated. This had to mean uh, uh, that, that God was going to restore his people. Now we've seen over and over again in the book of Daniel how Daniel is totally convinced that God is in control, that God is sovereign, and he will do exactly as he promises he'll do. And so there's no question in Daniel's mind that God is is going to hold true to this promise to restore his people and, and, and to return them from exile. The certainty of the promise is not in doubt as far as Daniel is concerned. And yet, notice what Daniel does. He turns to the Lord in prayer. God's sovereignty and the certainty of God's plan, rather than deterring Daniel from from praying, rather than him just saying, well, uh, God's going to do this, God's got this figured out, so I can just leave it. Rather than that, God's certain promises inform and motivate Daniel's prayers. See, God's promises give direction to Daniel's prayers. They inform how he should be praying, and they infuse his prayer with hope. He realizes that God's people are on the cusp, on the precipice of returning back to the promised land. One uh, commentator on on this passage gives a, a very vivid picture of the relationship between God's word, his promises, uh, and, and prayer. He says, it's as if God's promises have Velcro on them. And our prayers are meant to get stuck there. That's how Daniel thinks. Daniel sees uh, God's promises uh, uh, as somewhere that he can stick his prayers and they'll get stuck there. And so Daniel uh, uh, turns to the Lord in prayer, anticipating that God was about to restore his people. And so, carrying God's word with him, Daniel in sackcloth and ashes, this was just a physical sign of of humility, Daniel begins to pray. I want to take the the remainder of our time this morning to point out four important features of Daniel's prayer that should uh, inform and shape and motivate and infiltrate our prayers today as we pray for the church. So first, Daniel begins by acknowledging God for who he truly is. Look at verse 4. O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Daniel begins by acknowledging uh, two realities about who God is. The first reality that Daniel acknowledges is that God is great. 
The God who he, he is speaking to, he is powerful and he is mighty. And it's for this reason that Daniel dares to approach him. Because God can act. Because God can do great things. Because God can answer big prayers. Prayers for a church in exile. But this description of greatness is more than just saying that God is, is powerful. Uh, because Daniel also says that God is awesome. This isn't like... Uh, awesome in the surfer dude sense, but this is awesome in the words first sense of, of meaning a true, inspiring a true uh, a fear and reverence, that, that God evokes awe. Daniel knows that he cannot, that he dare not approach God, this God, lightly. This is the God who sent uh, Judah into exile. This is the God who raised up the king of Babylon to, to exercise judgment upon his people. This is the God who Daniel had said earlier in his life, uh, uh, to him belongs wisdom and might. This is the God who uh, uh, moves kings and removes them. This is the God who knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. No, don't think for a second that Daniel approaches this God lightly. And he acknowledges this before the Lord. But he also acknowledges a second reality about God. And that's that God keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We might paraphrase this by saying that God is a God who is faithful to keep his gracious, loving promises to his people. Now, though Daniel had seen that God is to be approached with a reverential fear, he also acknowledges before God that God remains true to his gracious and loving promises. And it's because uh, both Daniel believes both these qualities, that God is, is awesome and that God is a covenant-keeping, gracious God, that Daniel will pray the prayer that he does. You see, the, the greatness of God means that we must come before God with our sin. There is no hiding. But the mercy of God tells us that we can come before God, that there is a way to come before Him and receive forgiveness and receive grace. If we didn't uh, acknowledge both these things to be true, if we didn't suspect that God was great and awesome, we would never tremble in our sin. We would never truly sense our need and feel the need to confess our sin. It wouldn't drive us to prayer if we didn't think God was awesome. But if we didn't suspect that God was merciful, then we would only tremble in our sin and we would never willingly approach him or come before him. It's the conviction that both these things are true that drives Daniel and drives the Christian to humbly but boldly make our prayers to God for his beleaguered, exiled church. Daniel will confess the sins of the church in his day to God because he is convinced that God is mighty. He is to be feared. He is to be reverenced. And sin, therefore, is to be dealt with. But at the same time, this is a God who enters into covenant with sinners, and he is brimming with grace. This, friends, is where our prayers need to start as well, with this conviction as we lift up prayers for the church that we are approaching a God who is both awesome and gracious. 
Now for us as, who are Christians, as living on the other side of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, we see this even more clearly, that these two attributes of God are in perfect harmony uh, with each other. God's grandeur and his grace, uh, they hold hands. We see how at the cross that God's wrath against sin was poured out upon the sin of his people and as they had been laid on the Son of God so that God could be faithful in keeping his promises to his people. So as Christians today, as we, uh, as we go to the Lord in prayer for the church, we do well to begin by being clear about who God is. That these two truths, his grandeur and his grace, uh, need to be both set before us. We need to pray with our eyes upon them. We need to pray with our eyes upon the cross where we see those, these two attributes perfectly displayed. But the second thing I want us to see is that uh, in Daniel's prayer is uh, how he confesses the sins of himself and his people. This is the main point uh, in verses 5 through 15, and there's three things that I want us to notice about Daniel's confession. First, very briefly, uh, I want to draw your attention to the pronouns that are being used here. Notice in verse 5 that first word. What's the word? The words we. We have sinned. And it's this manner of speaking uh, where Daniel says, we and us, it's carried throughout his whole prayer. Daniel is praying on behalf of the church. So there is a place for Christians, not just for, for pastors or elders, but there is a place for Christians to stand in the shoes of the church and offer prayers for the church. We need to, to remember that there's an obvious corporate dimension to our life. We're not just individuals making prayers for our life, for our family, for specific people, but we are a people who, by God's grace, have been brought into a covenant community, and we are to pray for this community. Secondly, I want you to see that Daniel, as he confesses his sin, he doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't try and sugarcoat the sins of his people, the sins of himself, or to downplay them in any way. In verse 5, we see Daniel use four different words for sin in order that he could fully own sin in, in all of its aspects. He says, we've sinned. Now, the word here for sin, it's referring to the idea of missing the mark. We've failed to hit the target of God's law. We've failed to hit God's standard. He says, we've done wrong. This is, means we've twisted and we've perverted the law of God. It's more than just a failure to sort of live up to the standard that's been set by God. It's more than just a missing the mark, but there's a, a greater perversion here. This is, uh, we, we stand before the law of God and we bend it and transgress it according to our own wicked purposes. He says, we've acted wickedly. We've rebelled. This, notice the, the relational aspect of, of this. We, we've, we've set ourselves against God. Notice that there is no uh, fudging the reality of the people's sin in Daniel's prayer. See it throughout the prayer. Verse 6, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, putting it very plainly what they had done. Verse 9, We've rebelled against God and we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. 
There's no attempt in Daniel's confession to diminish, minimize, downplay sin. He owns it in all of its ugly, gross dimensions. But also notice, thirdly, that uh, there's no attempt to point fingers or to shift blame. In verses 7 to 9, we've got uh, Daniel very intentionally sets up a contrast uh, between the Lord and between his people. You notice that? To the Lord belongs righteousness, but to us belongs open shame. To us, he says, belongs open shame because we've sinned against you, but to the Lord belongs mercy and forgiveness. Now you can imagine perhaps that, that as uh, Daniel was praying, maybe people were hearing Daniel's prayer or, or reading it afterwards, uh, that they might say something like, okay, uh, we recognize uh, we weren't perfect. Uh, yes, we've sinned, uh, but God hasn't exactly treated us, his people, well either. Now, God maybe hasn't done right by us either, sending us into the hands of the, the Babylonians. And we sometimes think this way, don't we? We, uh, say, we, we might say, sure, you know, I, I see my sin, uh, but God, you didn't really treat me right here. Sure, I shouldn't have been angry at the kids all the time, uh, but that doesn't excuse God for letting them turn out the way they did. Or maybe uh, I'm a bit lazy, God, but that doesn't excuse the fact that you caused things to turn out as they did at work. See, we'll admit on the one hand, to some degree, we've sinned against the Lord, but on the other hand, we protest God's uh, treatment of us. We say that he's violated our rights or he's mistreated us in some respect. Even if we don't put it in those words, uh, we're angry that things have turned out the way they have. But this is not what biblical confession looks like. This is not how Daniel looks upon uh, the conditions of the church. Daniel, as, as we see in these contrasts, uh, says that open shame, and by this he just means a humiliation, the humiliation or the poor condition that have fallen on the people, this is rightly ours. It rightly belongs to us. Our sins mean that we cannot demand better treatment of ourselves uh, because of ourselves uh, at the hands of God, because we're transgressors. We've forfeited any other right to any other circumstances uh, that, that we might want. Daniel says, God, on the other hand, though we've forfeited those rights, God is righteous. He's acted righteously. He uh, did not do wrong by us, Daniel says, when he scattered us to foreign lands in judgment. God was only doing what he had warned he would do in his law when the people broke his covenant with him. When the people were faithless to God, God was not faithless toward his word. Read in places like Leviticus 26, which would be a good place if you're looking for something to, to read over lunch uh, 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 this afternoon. Leviticus 26, God lays out for the people uh, all the blessings that would flow from obedience, but then he warns the people that if they spurned his statutes, if they hated his commands, that God would set his face against them and he would strike them down with their enemies. So we see in, in Daniel's prayer here that biblical confession involves sinners humbling themselves before God, taking full ownership of their sin in, in all of its ugliness, in all of its dimensions, and exalting the righteousness of God and his works. We have sinned, but God has done right. 
And as we pray for the church, our prayer should be liberally sprinkled with this sort of confession of sin. We as a church should not hesitate to confess the sins, not only of us personally, but the sins of our church. Honest confession takes full ownership for sin, and this should be the hallmark of the church. Knowing that God is great, but he's also gracious, and knowing that God has, has provided a way to deal with sin, we should be, the, we should be a, known as a confessing body of people. What other group or institution in the world has such good reason to be so forthright about our sin? None. None. By our confession, we are exercising faith, trusting that God is who he says he is. Uh, One writer uh, helpfully says this on the role of confession in the church. He says, what distinguishes us as the church from the world is not that we are less wicked. Looking around, that's true. It's not that we're less wicked, but it's that by the grace of God, we have learned to see our wickedness for what it is and that we confess our sins. The church is the one body on earth that confesses sin. Where confession of sin dies out, the church is no longer the church. So Christian prayers for ourselves, but also for the church, should be characterized by an unflinching honesty of confession. If if the world were to hear our prayers, we would almost want them to say, can you be that honest? But we, we believe we can. Because we have a Savior who lived, died, and rose again for the forgiveness of our sins. The third aspect I want us to see in Daniel's prayer for the church uh, is closely related to this second aspect. It's that Daniel pleads with God to be merciful. Having admitted his sins uh, uh, and the sins of his people and having acknowledged the righteousness of God, Daniel pleads that God would act mercifully to the church. Humble confession, you might think, uh, paves the way, uh, paves the path on which God will bring mercy to his people. Charles Spurgeon uh, uh, told a story once of, of how he was uh, at home and, and a man knocked on the door and it was a, a beggar and Spurgeon was moved by the man and, and so uh, wanting to do something kind to him, uh, he, he went to his wardrobe and he grabbed the man a new set of, of clothes uh, and some new shoes And he gave them to the man and sent the man off. And after the man left, Spurgeon thought, man, I did not do that man any favors. Because if he puts on this new suit and this new shoes, uh, uh, I'm going to ruin his business of asking for help from people. And so Spurgeon goes out to find the man, or, or he's walking around later, and he finds the man. And he realizes that the man is not wearing the suit that he's put on. Uh, The the man is back in his beggar clothes, and and Spurgeon uh, notes that the man was wise enough to realize that for him to plead for mercy, he had to come in his poverty, not dressed up. We need to think the same way, that as moving from the confession of sin, we can move to pleading to God for mercy, asking that he would extend undeserved kindness to his church. And what exactly that plea for mercy is, is found in verse 16. Daniel pleads that God would forgive his people. Sin is the underlying reason for God's displeasure, but also that God would turn his anger from his city, Jerusalem, and from his temple. 
This is, Daniel is essentially just praying. He's praying uh, lo- that the Lord would restore his church, Jerusalem being the, the city that God had set his name upon, the temple being the place where, where God uh, uh, was found on earth. Daniel is praying that the Lord would restore the church, revive the church, that he would bind up his people, and he pleads to God for mercy. We need to be a a family of believers that pleads to God for mercy. But finally, the last aspect I want us to see is, is how Daniel prays for mercy. Daniel appeals to the Lord. Daniel gives God an argument for why God should listen and why God should act. He doesn't simply put his, his request out there to God, saying, God, please do this, please do this, please do this. But he, he puts forth a reason. He makes a case why God should answer his prayers for the church. Now, this is instructive, I think, for our own prayers. Because frequently, I think, we come to God with nothing more than our list of needs but without ever giving much thought ahead of time for why God should grant us those things in the first place. Imagine for a second that you encountered uh, significant financial difficulties and the bank was preparing to foreclose on your home. And you're on the brink of ruin and you're absolutely desperate and you've petitioned the bank for a meeting so that you might make your case. And the the officials agree that they'll sit down uh, for a meeting with you before the paperwork is finalized. Before you went into that meeting, would you do any preparation? Would you give any forethought to what you're going to say? Would you plan your arguments and your reasons? Almost certainly you would, right? You would have your case ready to go. So when you stepped in here, you'd say, please don't do this. And, and just sort of chart out the reasons. Why? Because you're desperate for mercy. You're desperate for leniency. And, and you need to make your case with all the clarity you can muster for why you need to have it. Again, uh, Spurgeon, in a wonderful sermon on the topic of prayer, says that we are to use arguments in prayer not because uh, God is slow to give and we're trying to, to, to uh, force Him to give to us, not because we can change the divine purposes Not because God needs to be informed about the circumstances, but we present our arguments to God for our own benefit, not His, because it shows us that we feel the value of mercy. By appealing to God with arguments in prayer, we're not going to help God think of the situation in a new way or anything ridiculous like that but we're going to evidence how desperately important it is for us to receive the thing we're asking for. We don't dare leave the case unmade. We will not stop pressing God for mercy. Parents, it's like that child who's sitting in the back seat who's asked you for something and he's just going to badger you with requests and not just the requests, but the reasons. And and you just see the little mind sort of turn in and it's like, okay, here's another reason, bam, another reason, bam. We need to be doing that with God. So, What then is the argument that Daniel uses here as he prays for mercy for the church? First, we can say what it's not. Daniel begins by saying, it's not our righteousness. There's no notion of merit here. God will not grant, Daniel recognizes, uh, the, the prayer for mercy because his people are in any way deserving. The answer is not found in 
in anything we've done, but his argument is found and grounded in God, and it comes in two parts. Daniel, first of all, appeals to the Lord's covenant with his people. We see him doing this in a couple different ways. First, we see how Daniel uses uh, throughout this prayer the, the special covenantal name of the Lord, represented in your uh, English Bibles uh, with, by the, the, the word Lord in the special ca- uh, case or, or typeface. Right? So uh, Daniel addresses the Lord by his covenantal name, but he also addresses the Lord's history with the people. He says, uh, Lord, you're the one who has brought us out of the land of Egypt. He appeals to God's history. He says, you've acted for your people before. You've uh, established this people as your own. They bear your name. But then thirdly, he, 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 he says that you've placed your name on your city. Jerusalem, you've placed your name on your people. You've, uh, you've uh, established a connection with your place. Notice all, all the, the language of you and your addressing God. We're your people, and this is your city, and this is your temple. And then he says, Lord, so you've established us by your covenant that we belong to you. And yet, because we are suffering Uh, Your name is being dragged through the mud. Your name has become a byword. It has become a term of offense. The kids in in the neighboring uh, countries on the schoolyard would use the the, uh, name Jew or or speak of the city of Jerusalem as as sort of a swear word or as an insult. Right? Daniel says, Lord, look, as long as we remain, as long as your church remains in this estate, uh, the glory of your name is at stake. And from that, he appeals to God and he says, act. Because if you don't act, the nations have the opportunity to scorn you, to despise you, to despise your glory. Act, God, because you care about your glory. Act for the sake of of your own, act for your own sake, act for the sake of your name. So here's the argument. God, you care about your glory. You are zealous for it. And because you care about your glory, you should care about your people and your place because you've set your name upon it, uh, upon them. You've, You've staked your reputation upon them. So again, this is instructive for us as we pray for the church. The church's needs are, are manifold. There are many. We can uh, see it clearly. But we need to know as we come to God in prayer for the church, we, we uh, establish those prayers not on the basis of our righteousness, but we can, can have confidence in approaching God because he has graciously, kindly entered into covenant with his people. Because he has placed his name upon the church. Because he has placed his name upon uh, you and me as believers. Because he has, he has said, this is the place where my spirit will dwell. This is the place where I will make myself known. God has staked his reputation on the church by entering into a gracious covenant with her. God has committed himself to showing mercy to his people. And by God's grace, we anticipate receiving this mercy as we go to the throne of heaven on behalf 
of the church. Friends, we need to know that God has an interest in hearing our prayers for the church. He has an interest in responding to our cry for mercy and hearing us as we bring our sins before him, as we plead for mercy and as we ask that the Lord would respond, showing his favor, restoring his church and reviving her once more so we can pray in confidence. Let's do that now. Father in heaven, as Daniel began his prayer, so we begin ours this morning. You are great and awesome. You are a covenant-keeping God, and you show steadfast love to those who love you and keep your commandments. You are a God who we tremble before because you are awesome, and yet you are a God who we can come before confidently knowing that you are intent to show mercy and grace to your people, to your church. Lord, this morning we confess our sins as a church. We confess our, our fear as a church as we live in the midst of the world, that we do ministry often out of, out of fear or we fail to, to, to do ministry as a church because we are afraid or we confess that, we, that your church can be indifferent and apathetic and cold. We can go through the motions. We can fail to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Or we confess that your church can succumb to the influence of the world and worldliness permeates uh, the gathering of your people. We turn and chase other gods and we turn and chase other things. Oh Lord, we ask that you would show mercy and that you would forgive us. Not because of any righteousness in us, but we ask that you would forgive us first because of your son and because of his worthiness. But also, Lord, we ask that you would forgive us so that you might, uh, you might lead your church to greener pastures to greater flourishing, that you might revive and restore your church, that you would bring her to, to stronger days, to a greater witness, to greater joy and greater fellowship with one another. Lord, we ask that you would do this for your name's sake so that the world might look on and see your church and see it as a place where the gospel is truly believed, where sins are honestly laid before you, where mercy is humbly pleaded for, where forgiveness is found at the foot of the cross of Christ and where your name is honored above all. Lord, we humbly ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.